Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. Today we're coordinating three different time zones across the world. Australia, my producers in London, and a very special guest in Alabama in America. Regina Benjamin was the 18th Surgeon General of the United States from 2009 to 2013. She was appointed by President Obama and as America's doctor was the operational head of the US Public Health Service Commission Corps and leading spokesperson on matters of public health for the American people. I'm delighted to welcome her, despite it being 7am here in Australia. Regina, can you explain for those who aren't so familiar with the term US Surgeon General and what it means? We had Sally Davies on here a few weeks ago, the former Chief Medical Officer for England. How similar is the Chief Medical Officer role and the Surgeon General role? And why does the Surgeon General role kind of have a military connection? So her role is a little bit more like the Secretary of Health for the United States. My role as Surgeon General has two parts. One is as America's doctor. And with that, I would explain and present to the American people the best science that's available about a public health issue at the time. And so trying to get people to be healthier and fit and things like anti-smoking, increased walking. We had a national prevention strategy, the social determinants of health, all things to keep Americans healthy. And so that's one role as America's doctor. The second role of the Surgeon General is to lead the United States Public Health Service, which is a branch of the military. And we're one of the branches that don't carry a gun. We will shoot you, but we shoot you with a needle to vaccinate you. The public health is like the Navy protects our shores, the Air Force protects our skies. We protect the public's health. And so I had 6,500 officers under my command that was spread out throughout the United States and throughout the world, particularly all officers, so physicians and nurses, scientists, to do surveillance and to be available to protect Americans' health, but through by protecting the world's health. 
And so whenever there's a breakout, an outbreak or something of some infectious disease or something, you'll hear the CDC deployed a group. Those would be our officers who would go there and, and try to contain whatever that infectious disease might be. So the whole purpose of the public health service is to protect the public's health. And from that unique vantage point that you've had as U.S. Surgeon General, what would you say to our listeners about the challenges facing healthcare in the United States itself? You know, life after COVID has changed, but pre-COVID and currently as well, we've had the real challenges have been around the non-communicable diseases, things like obesity, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, those things that are non-infectious really are started to take its toll on citizens and, and on the healthcare system. And we're seeing it not just in the U.S., we're seeing it in other countries as well. It's starting to become a big part of various nations' budgets because they're becoming chronic diseases and using up resources and people are becoming much more ill and dying more frequently because of these. And so we really need to get a, a handle on how to handle these chronic diseases and these underlying, as we call, non-communicable diseases, or NCDs, as the World Health Organization calls them. And we are, of course, talking during the days of the coronavirus pandemic, which has particularly hit America hard. Why do you think it's been so intense for the United States and particularly for places like New York, which around the world, whether we're in Australia or London or anywhere else, we're seeing so much coverage of? Well, it's like any other you know, outbreak of infectious disease. If we follow the public health guidelines and guidances, we tend to be able to handle them. Unfortunately, early on, this was not contained. Normally, we would try to contain an infectious disease. And this particular COVID-19 was not contained. And so it started spreading around the world. And when you get into areas where there's large populations and close quarters, that's where you're going to see the first earlier outbreaks. And that's sort of what we saw with Italy and then New York and some of the other places here in the U.S. In the U.S., there is a, another part of that that I was just telling you about these non-communicable diseases. Because we have them, we also have what we call health disparities around certain populations. And our minority populations, particularly our African-Americans, our Hispanics, and Native Americans have been hit very, very hard. Early on in the COVID-19, we were very clear that elderly people and people with underlying health conditions were, were at higher risk. And so we understood that. So knowing that some of these conditions like hypertension and diabetes and strokes really affects the minority communities, it wasn't a surprise that we started to see more cases within the minority communities. But what we were really surprised by was how sick people were coming in and how fast they were deteriorating and how quickly they were dying. And they were dying much more. And so the numbers of deaths in the minority communities are much higher. I'm on the board of the American Heart Association. And what we found at the Heart Association is that underlying cardiac arrhythmias seem to be correlated with people doing poorly and people are doing very poorly when they get the COVID-19 virus. And so the Heart Association has put in a $2.5 million rapid response 
grant to try to figure out, is there anything that we can do with these underlying cardiac arrhythmias? People don't even know they have an irregular heartbeat. People with high blood pressure may not even know they have high blood pressure. Diabetics may not know that they're pre-diabetic. So you're seeing these groups of people being affected much more and more frequently. And they're also the people who are on the front lines. They're the folks that are working in the hospitals and the nursing homes. They're working in the food industry. They're doing what we call the essential jobs. And yet they're the most vulnerable. And so we have to be very vigilant about making sure we protect them and give them as much protection as possible with PPE, as social distancing, and and the things that we really have to look out for them as much as we can. And as someone who spent a lifetime getting accurate health messages to people across all of the things that you've done, how do you feel when you see the President of the United States telling people that he's taking a medicine that's going to help fight the virus, even though uh, the science says differently, making statements about getting disinfectant inside people's bodies? What does that make you think and feel? Well, you know, I'm a physician and my whole career has always been around the science and I just have to continue to try to give people the best information based on science the best that we have available and just keep telling them that and just hopefully they'll listen. These are serious times, you know, these conditions that I just described around the health disparities. Well, those same conditions, the hypertension, the diabetes and prediabetes, those are also what we see in the rural communities. They're very prevalent there. So it's not just genetic. And we have a saying here that in the U.S. that your zip code is a better predictor of your health outcomes than your genetic code. And so it's really where you are and and those underlying conditions. And so as a nation, we're really at risk. And so we have to teach people how to protect themselves and how to socially distance, how to wash their hands. And so when I see leaders out there not taking this or seemingly taking this as serious as I would like them to, it's, it's very disheartening. And when you were Surgeon General, were there pandemic practice exercises? Did you go through kind of drills as to how the US would respond? Did you imagine that it could be like this? We did go through drills. We, we always did drills and, and we did preparations and preparedness. I came in under the Obama administration, which was right after the Bush administration. And the Bush administration was very strong on preparedness because we had gone through 9-11 and they had done tremendous amount of work around that. And so the Obama administration continued that preparedness and we had a number of things in place. But we didn't just do drills. We also had the H1N1 outbreak. And so we had reality there. And just as I was leaving, we had Ebola. So we had real life drills, if you will. Do you think the lessons from those times, from the two infectious diseases that you faced in your time as Surgeon General, do you think that lessons were learned that are informing the response now? I hope so. I know that people that are still there, the scientists and things that are there are still calling on that and trying to build on what we learned. And the information is there and trying to build on the information. And every outbreak, everything is different. And so we have to change as it changes. But we base 
on what we learned before, with the lessons learned, we can do better and attack some of these things much faster if we really build on what we've known already. I want to take you back now to your childhood. You grew up in Mobile, Alabama in the 1950s. When you were a child, when did you first think to yourself, maybe this isn't a world that's fair for women? And when did you first think to yourself that maybe there are particular issues for African-American women and girls? So I grew up in, down here we call it Mobile. Oh, sorry, Mobile. (laughs) Um, Across the bay from there in a little rural part of the the town in, in Alabama. And Alabama is known for the role of being in the South. We were part of the civil rights movement. Birmingham was kind of the center of it. So I grew up understanding all around about the civil rights in the 60s and stuff. So, But for me, I don't know that I ever thought about it that way. I had some very strong women who were my influencers, my mom and my my grandmother. My grandmother was she was a property owner. She owned land and, and many Blacks didn't own land. So she owned land. And so whenever something would happen, someone in town would be arrested oftentimes for things that didn't exist. She would bail them out because she could put up the land for collateral or whatever, and she, she could post their bond. And so she was kind of a part of the community. And she always knew that it was important for us to always be a part of the community, but always be available and help others if they needed it. And they would be there for you if you would also be there for them. So community was always part of it. But she was also a a businesswoman and she ran her own business. And so she was kind of an inspiration. And, And I always thought that was the way it was supposed to be. I didn't know the difference. My mother worked, my parents were separated when I was two good Catholics. So we, they never got divorced, but they were separated. So I always was around, you know, very strong women who were constantly doing things and they had high expectations of themselves and of me. And so it didn't occur to me. And I always just knew I was supposed to do what I could for whatever the situation was. And as far as thinking even different, I never thought I was better than other people, but I always knew I was just as good. And so it wasn't a thing you dwelled on. You just continued to do what you needed to do whatever day it was. So. And why select medicine? You were the first member of your family to attend medical school. And you've said before that you had never seen a black doctor before you went to college. So it's got to have taken a lot of passion and guts to think, I can do this when I've never seen anybody like me do it. Where did that come from? Actually not. You know, I went to this Catholic college, Xavier University in New Orleans, and it's I've always joined clubs and joined organizations, my sororities, my club. The most popular club was pre-med. And so I joined pre-med. And so it was almost just, I always say it's divine intervention. It was nothing that I did. So as you join a club, you go to the various meetings, you do the things, you had to keep a certain grade point average to be in a club. So all those things went along. And when it was time to start to interviewing, I interviewed for medical school and, you know, I got accepted. It was, you'd compete to say if you're going to, who could get the most, most acceptances to medical school by your end of your junior year. So it was competition more than anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, I had to decide to go to medical school or not. And of course I did. And then 
I was in medical school, I guess, first, second year before I ever made like less than a, a B on a test. And I think when I made that B in medical school, it's pretty competitive. I realized that, you know, there's nothing else I'd want to do except this. So I better not get any more Bs. I better get serious, you know. I was where I was supposed to be. And I think, yeah, as I say, the Lord takes you where you need to be. <laughs> And today I could think of being nothing else. And in terms of other life decisions, when you became a doctor, you could have, of course, gone and worked in a flashy hospital in a big city, but you did the complete opposite of that. You set up a solo medical practice in a tiny rural fishing village where 80% of your patients were below the poverty line. What made you decide to do that? Again, I wanted to get back as close to home as I could. And when I went to school, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have money to pay for medical school. And I also didn't have any way to borrow money. So I did a program called the National Health Service Corps, which is a, in in the U.S. is a HHS program where you go to medical school, they pay for it. And then you serve a year for every year they paid for in an underserved community. So I had to go to an underserved community, but I wanted to get as close to home as possible. And so that's how I got to Alabama. You know, the National Health Service Corps sent me to this little town of Biola Battery, which is about 30 minutes from my hometown, right across the bay. You know, it's a pretty place, but it's a poor place. And I found a community of working poor, too poor to afford medical care, but they were too rich to qualify for our program we call Medicaid, which is a federal program. So I like the people and I wanted to practice medicine there, but I quickly learned that practicing medicine wasn't what I call just sewing up the shark bites. I had to deal with what I call the land shark, the regulators, all the paperwork, all the things that you don't think about when you're going into medicine. Also learned that my prescription pad wasn't enough, you know, that people had other issues like clean water, housing. It's a shrimping town, so the way people were the, the shrimpers would clean their oil or change the oil in their boats. They would empty the oil in the water and put more oil in the boat. So we just put together some barrels right there at the docks and they just emptied in the barrels and the water started clearing up. It's just simple little solutions that we found. Um, and there were just a number of little things. And I found that, you know, it's helping the community become healthier because that's what they wanted as well. It wasn't that they didn't want, no one had ever kind of showed them. And so I've been involved in that community now for 30 years. And we've gone through lots of things like Hurricane Katrina and a couple of other hurricanes and different disasters. I like that uh, saying, it's not just sewing up the shark bites. That's something that Australians could relate to. People are always asking me about their risk of getting bitten by a shark in Australia. I tell them, really not very high. But in this story about how you've served your community, uh, really the sacrifices you've made have been extraordinary. The clinic that you built was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. You set about rebuilding it and then, shockingly, a day before it was scheduled to reopen, it was destroyed a second time by fire and you rebuilt again, including mortgaging your own home to help finance the rebuild. Now, that speaks of a real driving mission. Can you tell us what's kept you energised and prepared to do that? It's remarkable. You know, it sounds remarkable, but 
after Katrina, you're right, we had a. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We were going to reopen the day after New Year's, but that night it burned to the ground. And so I was there with the fire people, the fire marshals, and the building was just simmering and it was just devastating. But I had one of my patients and remember this was after Katrina. So everybody had lost their homes, 2,500 people, 2000 had lost their homes. So they didn't have anything. But one of my elderly patients sent me an envelope by her granddaughter and it had $7 in it. And it said to help build and rebuild a clinic. And I was like, if she can find $7, I was going to find the rest because she didn't really have it. And so that was really why I kept going is is patience and people like her. And that's what makes you know you have a reason to be there. And hopefully I can make a difference by being there. And so out of a community of 2,500, 2,000 had lost their homes in Katrina. But Katrina was very devastating for the entire Gulf coast. And so I actually went with a foundation over to Phuket, Thailand, to look at how they had responded to the tsunami, which had happened a year before, because we had similar industry. We were seafood and tourists, and that's what they were. And so to try to learn how they responded. And what I learned was that there were some differences. They had lost tons of lives. And so one of the statements they made about the U.S. was that we determine our disasters by the number of dollars lost, but they determine their disasters by the number of lives lost. And that really is true. And what really matters is lives. And so when I came back, you know, I was in, had a, a good perspective on that. But we also learned that you could do things and put groups together. So we had our little trailer, which we were operating out that we'd have people, the volunteer groups would have a place to meet every morning and coordinate their volunteer efforts. So one group would have the volunteers remove debris. Another one would help rebuild someone's house. Another one, like Habitat for Humanity, would would build a house and someone else would come in and hang the curtains and help paint. So everybody could share. And the community, the people themselves could sign up for what they needed. And so it was just a little coordination And so we became kind of a center for rebuilding in the Gulf Coast. What role has gender played in all of this? Do you think as a woman, as a doctor, as a community leader, that there have been people who have reacted to you differently based on your gender? I do think there there have certainly been different reactions, both good and bad. Not bad, but good and and not great. (laughs) So, So... As a physician, oftentimes, you know, as a female physician, we tend to have a little bit of more of a, a calmingness to us and a little slow, slowerness. But I know some, some men who are that way too, but, but in general. And so people are maybe a little bit more comfortable at times from that standpoint. 
but also as a strong woman, some men are very intimidated by that. And so that's also a challenge is trying to make sure that in the early days, for example, I would have to make sure my voice was heard. So we talked about my clinic and all of that, but all of that same time, I was part of the American Medical Association and I was going up through the ranks with that. So I was a student, then I was a young physician leader, and then I became the first African-American woman to be elected to its board of trustees. And back in our state, I was the first woman president and I was the first African-American president. And so those were challenging times because they had never had a woman and they never had an African-American. So it was really kind of kind of tough. And so I would have to make sure I was heard. So early on, like sitting around the board table, I'd say something and nobody would pay attention, right? And then one of the guys say the same thing. And all they say, oh, that was great, Jack. <laughs> Why didn't you think of that? At first I would get a little not so happy about it. But then I learned that, okay, I'm going to use that to my advantage. So I would say it, or I would tell one of the guys something, you should say this. And he would, and he'd get all this attention, but he owed me. (laughs) By this time he was in my debt and I was valuable to them. And so then as that started to build up your own worth within that board table, then I was able to start to get some credibility and to be able to move forward. But hopefully young women don't have to do that sort of thing today because we've been there and did it for them. But it was not that guys were trying to ignore you. They just never thought you existed. You just weren't present for them. And I had to make myself present. And so now, I mean, I don't have to do that at all, of course, because there's no question about being present because I'll speak up and and say something quicker, probably before anybody would think about it. But I also remember having people, having guys in the medical association, everybody were guys, and most of them were over 60. So they were men and they had kids my age. And so just having them to remember that we're at the table, sitting at that table and say, you're talking about women. I'm saying, well, why aren't there any women here? They are. The other thing that used to annoy me was as I became a little bit more, I guess, successful or present in within that arena, when I'd say, but what about other women? They'd say, oh, but you're different and you're special. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just like everybody else. So why don't we get some more women? <laughs> why don't we get some more African-Americans? It's like, you can't put me aside and marginalize me and say, you've got enough. That kind of early days would kind of annoy me a little bit. I'm sure you've been through some of that. (laughs) And when you were appointed U.S. Surgeon General, did you feel some of that in the reaction to you, some gendered reactions? There was, of course, some commentary suggesting that you weren't the right person for the job, that you... I'll tell you why. I don't mind. (laughs) Okay. I'll leave that to you. Yeah, I'll I'll be glad to tell you why. So, yes, I was um, nominated and then... A little different than nomination now. We couldn't speak. We had to be quiet and until the nomination went through. We couldn't speak to the press. We couldn't defend ourselves. And so everything they kept throwing at me was was not sticking. And so one of the things they basically said was that I was too fat. I was obese and much too fat to be Surgeon General. And that why would you have somebody who's overweight as a Surgeon General? So there were several people who 
uh, and groups and organizations, of course, who came to my defense and, and pointed out that there were a few men, my predecessors, who were much more robust than I was, and that that was very kind of chauvinistic. So the other thing is I, I decided that that's fine because obesity is a, a problem and I would, took it head on because that we needed to not be telling people or trying to shame people that you can be healthy at any weight. You just be your best and start to exercise and do things that we tell you need to do, but you can be healthier no matter what weight you are. But that was one of them, one of the things. When I became Surgeon General, it's a branch of the military and it was pretty male dominated. And so while we had a few females there, it was still times that you'd be challenging. And, and I would try to make things better for the females that were in, in the public health service so that they wouldn't have to go through these sort of things, little subtle things. you know. What kind of changes did you try and make so that it was easier for women? Can you give us a sense of that? Well, in the public health service, they were just day-to-day routine things like how you wear your uniform, when you wear your uniform, what type of uniform, because I set the uniform of the day, how you wear your hair, do you have to pull your hair back, and all this kind of little stuff that had nothing to do with your your ability to work, those sort of things. But also, more importantly, was promotions and what it took to get promoted. There's a certain number of things you you have to do and how you take the right courses, how you get put in the right places so that you can be on the road to promotion. If nobody tells you, you won't know that. It's the same thing with tenure. It's the same thing with other things. If you're not on the right path, you won't get promoted. And yet you may be the best person for the job. So just getting people in the right positions, on the right track, in the right trajectory so that they could be promoted or at least could hold their own and, and could stand up to any anyone else so that they can be promoted. One of the things you've been prepared to do is argue in favour of women's reproductive rights and health and particularly support women's access to abortion. Yet you are a deeply religious person and a Catholic. Have you found it challenging to square your faith with that advocacy for women? No, I, I think it fits. You know, I don't I'm not a I'm not a proponent of pro-abortion, but I am a proponent of, of women's rights. And God gave us a right to Adam and Eve a right to make a decision. I think we have to give everyone the best information and they have to make the best decision for themselves. And it's not inconsistent with Catholic social teachings, which we don't push our religion on other people, but we do give you the information and hopefully you'll make good choices and, and good choices for you and for your family. And during the days of this uh, pandemic, what's a day in the life of Regina Benjamin like right now? How fraught is it? Oh, it's like Zoom, another <laughs> Zoom, another Zoom equivalent or blue jeans or whatever they're called or Microsoft Meets and whatever. It's it's one after the other. It's been interesting. I just did a graduation commencement last week, last Friday, for a medical school via video conferencing, which was very different. <laughs> it's like, but it was it was quite interesting in that I I did the speech, but you know you make the speech much shorter. Even in real life, people face to face people want them to be short, but this you know sitting in front of a screen is need to be short. 
But we also did the Hippocratic Oath together, which I thought was great to be able to say that because it's so important that you, when you take that oath to become a physician, that you're, you know, swearing before God that you're going to put your patients first. And so it's really important that we took it, but we were able to do that with a video conference as well. And what's next for you? What's next in your life? So right now, you know, I have a health policy research center in Alabama here that we're trying to address the social determinants of health. So we've been doing this for about four or five years and and trying to decrease those things I talked about early on with the chronic diseases. How, why do the states that border the Gulf of Mexico, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and Florida have the worst health outcomes in the United States? when we have some of the best medical schools and the best physicians in the country, yet our health rankings are 49, 50, and all of them are under 40. And so the lowest health rankings, and so something's causing it. And I suspect that it probably has to do with health policies and what I call the political determinants of health as well, because those policies really do impact people's lives. So the number of sidewalks impact how much you're exercising, whether your your financial health is directly related to your physical health. The number we found, like the number of liquor stores per square mile or per block really relates to absenteeism from work, domestic violence, all those. All you'd have to do is just change the number of liquor stores. Not you have to get rid of them all, but the density of them. And so things like that, we're doing research to show that we common sense tells you, but you need science and research to show it that it is or isn't. And that if you change those things, they'll, they'll matter. So we're working on trying to improve some of those social determinants and also trying to make our communities healthier places to live. And that way, people and companies and things will want to come and um, have their, their industries there, and we can improve the lives of the, the people in the community. I always conclude these podcasts with some standard form questions, the first of which is to put a fact to my guest. And your fact is, according to a study conducted by the Commonwealth Fund in 2018, comparing the US with 10 other high-income countries, US women report the least positive experiences, they have the greatest burden of chronic illness and the highest rate of maternal mortality. More than one third of women in the US report skipping medical care they need because of costs and more than one quarter report spending $2,000 or more on out-of-pocket medical costs for themselves or their family. Does any of that surprise you? No. And in fact, to add to that, the maternal death rate mortality for African-American women are, is even worse than what you described. It's worse than some third world countries. And we have to figure out why. And it's not income related. We see people like Serena Williams who almost died because of it. So we have to start to address them. All of the things that you just described, I think, just kind of going out on a limb, no science behind this, but there will be, is that health policies matter and that when all of them could be addressed by improving certain policies that we have in place. We don't have policies that are in the favor of women. We don't have good childcare policies. We don't have things that are equitable 
And so I think we as a society could do much better in those policies and start to change some of those numbers. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? You know, I try not to think about that too much because I just figure it's their problem, not mine. But I guess when I was running for office in in the state to run to get on this board of the State Medical Society, which was controlled all of healthcare in the state, you had to go around to different little groups and speak to them. And and I went to one and there was this doctor who said, he says, who's who's going with you? So he, he went with me and he was like an older doctor who just kind of took me under his wing and, and int- would introduce me. So we went in this room and this one doctor stood up and talking to the, the older guy, he says, now, Bill, this isn't right. You know, we don't need a black person on that board. And besides, we got one woman anyway. <laughs> so I thought, okay, this doctor, Bill, the older doctor was going to answer. I said, no, I'll answer it. And I explained to him that the guy that I wasn't running as a black person and I wasn't running as a woman, I was running as the most qualified person. And if he didn't think I was, then he should vote for someone else. And I went on with my speech. Well, that was what he believed at the time. And this guy became one of my strongest supporters throughout the years as it went on. But he didn't know any better. It was sort of like I could have been angry about it, but he probably would have had a different experience. It's a fantastic story. Thank you. If you had all the power for a moment and you could change one thing for women, what would it be? Nothing. (laughs) I would... We're great. (laughs) I would give us more powers, you know, as far as society and all those things, I would probably try to make it much more equal. And and certainly we tend to do so much that at one time we take on everything. We take everything on our shoulders and we take it personally. I would ask women to take care of themselves better because we often take care of others first. And I think it's important that we do take care of others and that's part of who we are. And we're already too much of a selfish society. So I'm not saying that we should be selfish, but I do think we should take a minute and take care of ourselves as well. I like that answer. Virginia Woolf says, one likes people much better when they're battered down by a prodigious siege of misfortune rather than when they triumph. Regina says, you know, I've learned more by, particularly in politics, by losing a race than by winning. The challenges and the struggles make you stronger and it it makes you who you are. And so I take every opportunity as a learning opportunity and to be stronger. So I I agree with Virginia Woolf that adversity makes us strong. Virginia is a good woman to agree with. Regina, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been terrific. Thank you. Thank you. And we're so proud of you and all that you're doing, and you're my role model. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with Kings Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider and come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Gillard.